the grandfather knocked on the door, and uh, the door was opened, and he said to his granddaughter, I, I want you to come out here to the driveway. And the granddaughter came out with him into the driveway, and he said, do you see that car? And she said, yeah, I, I see that car. He said, I have been driving that car for a long time. It is a very good car. It is a very reliable car. These are the keys to that car, and I want to give you the keys to that car. And she was ecstatic. She said, well, yes, can I drive it? And he said, no. And she said, what? He said, do you know how to drive? She said, well, no. Do you have a driver's license? No. He said, okay. You may not drive that car. If, if you were to drive that car right now, you would be... Um, a disaster. It would be a threat to you and everyone around you were you to drive that car right now. But I want you to come and ride with me in this car, and I will teach you how to drive that car. Now, the reason that I start with that illustration is because if you were here last week, you recall that uh, the disciples have been handed the keys to the kingdom of heaven and have been told they are not to use them. Okay, so let's just rehearse that really quickly. In Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 15, Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He gave them the keys to the kingdom. He said, you already understand the key to the kingdom. The key to entering the kingdom of heaven is this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, now don't tell anybody that. Don't tell anybody that. And when we read that last week, I went, what, now why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he want his disciples going around and unlocking everyone and letting them into the kingdom of heaven? He just said, when you know this, those who believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, they will be entering into heaven. And anyone who doesn't believe that, they will be bound and excluded from heaven. And so why wouldn't you want those disciples turning everybody loose with the information that Jesus is the Christ? the Son of the living God. And now we're about to get our answer. In verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus has just... Uh, 
acknowledged to them that they are correct in believing that he is the Christ, right? The Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God to come and rescue his people, right? That's who Jesus is. The disciples go, we think that's who you are. And he said, yep, that's true. That's true. I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God. Now, let me explain to you guys what that means, okay? And, and Matthew has this turn of phrase right here. At the beginning of verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples. It's from that time, from that time. Now, there are other places in Matthew where he says, At that time, Jesus. And then he says, This is now a new scenario, something that's happening with Jesus. But when he says, From that time, and from that time, now there's the major pivot point in the book of Matthew. You see, we've heard this phrase before in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you had had, in the beginning of Matthew, the explanation of Jesus' birth and who he was, right? And then you had in chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus, right? He was baptized in chapter 3. In chapter 4, you had the temptation of Jesus where Satan came and tempted him and tried to test him and get him to sin, and Jesus refused to do that. And from that time after that, Jesus began to uh, proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And after that time, Jesus began to establish himself as the messianic king. There was lots of confusion, many people asking questions, wondering, but from that time, that's when Jesus started calling his disciples. That's when Jesus started proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's when people started seeing miracles, hearing his teaching, as he would debate with the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the Sadducees, and all of these things were happening, and they were watching him, and people were asking, now, who is this? Who is this man? Who is this that has this kind of teaching? Who is this that has this kind of healing? Who is this remarkable man? Is he a prophet? Is he a great teacher? Is he a rabbi? Who is this guy? And it all comes to a climax right in the middle of chapter 16 when Peter says, I know who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And from that time on, now Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Matthew has been spending a significant amount of his book building the case that Jesus is the Christ and making it so obvious and having all these people going, well, is he this? And Matthew, in his narrative, is going, nope, he's not that. Well, is he a prophet? Nope, he's not just merely a prophet. Well, is he just a miracle worker? Nope, he's not just a miracle worker. Well, is he a teacher? Well, he's not just a teacher. Is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Nope, he's not John the Baptist raised from the dead. Is he Elijah? Is he Jeremiah? Is he one of the great prophets resurrected? Nope, he's not one of those. Is he a prophet like them? Nope, he's not. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one, the Son of God. 
That's who Jesus is. He had built that case all the way up, and now that we have identified that is who Jesus is, you might go, okay, that's it, that solves it, we're done. And he says, nope, but now Jesus has to explain to them what that means. What does it mean that he is the messianic king, the Christ king? What does that mean? And so he begins to explain to them, okay, now that Peter has acknowledged that I am the Christ, I am the son of the living God, let me explain to you guys, we're up in the north of Israel here by the Sea of Galilee, where we've been for some time, we're going to have to go back down to Jerusalem. The reason that we're going to have to go back down to Jerusalem is I'm going to have to suffer a lot at the hands of the religious leaders. I'm going to have to suffer a lot at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. They are going to make my life miserable. That's what's going to have to happen next, guys. I have to go back to Jerusalem. You're going to have to go with me. But just so you know, when we get there, you may think messianic king means we're going to Jerusalem, you're going to take over, we're going to anoint you king, and we're going to usher in this new era of revolution with Jesus as king. And he says, and that's not exactly how this is going to go. In fact, exactly how this is going to go is like this. We're going to go down to Jerusalem, they're going to make my life miserable, and then they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. That's how this is going to go. I just want you to know in advance so that when we get there and this happens, you guys don't freak out, okay? Can, I, can, we, just, can we just understand what's going on here? That's what's going to happen. I'm going to go down and uh, I'm going to die in Jerusalem at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes. Now, this is not actually that different than what he's been saying before, right? Because what did he just say before? He, he told them, whatever you, uh, I have given you the keys of the, uh, of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Nope, oh, I got to back up further than that. I didn't back up far enough, sorry. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of death shall not prevail against this message that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so now what is he telling them? I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, and then be raised again on the third day. How is that possible? Because he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the The gates of death have no hold on him. And so, yep, he's going to go and he's going to suffer. And yes, he's going to die. And then on the third day, he's going to rise again. And so, okay, guys, that's how this is going to go. I'm the king. Here's our mission. We go to Jerusalem. I suffer. I die. I rise again. That's how we win. Okay? And all of, of course, his disciples went, oh, well, if that's the plan, sounds good to me. Except for Peter, right? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus, from that time, began to show his disciples. He began at that time to show his disciples what was going to happen. 
And at that time, Peter began to rebuke him. Peter, you understand that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those are the keys to the kingdom. Those are the keys to the kingdom. And from the time he hands Peter the keys, he starts to explain what this means so that Peter can understand. And Peter goes, nope, I got the keys. Let me tell you how this is going to go, Jesus. It's not like that. It's not like that. I know you handed me the keys and you told me not to use them, but I know how to use them. You're the Christ. You're the messianic king. You're not going to suffer. That's not how this is going to go. They're not going to kill you. That's not how this is going to go. It's not going to be like that, Jesus. In fact, he didn't just say, Jesus, I have a question. Why does it need to go like that? He didn't approach Jesus and say, Jesus, I have a concern, and let me, let me give you my point of view. He took Jesus aside and he said, Jesus, that's not how this is going to go. He rebuked Jesus. Jesus was explaining to him the plan. And Peter, with the keys of the kingdom in hand still, is rebuking Jesus. Now, why did Jesus tell him not to use the keys yet? so that they wouldn't go binding and loosing the wrong things, right? I've given you the keys to the kingdom so that you may bind what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And, and Peter goes, okay, Jesus, I'm going to have to handcuff you here because that is not a good plan. When we were talking about this at our uh, sermon meeting, uh, Pastor John said, it's like Peter took him aside and said, uh, Jesus, I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. And I wonder, how often do I have a wonderful plan for Jesus' life? How often do I look at what's happening in the world? How do I, often do I look at what's happening in the church? How often do I look at what's happening in my family or in my own life? And I go, Jesus, this is not how this should go. I have a different idea. I have a different idea. Now, I um, am not so bold as Peter to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. I, I'm more non-confrontational than that. And so I just sort of ignore Jesus and go, okay, Jesus, that's not a really good way of doing things. I'm going to do it my way instead. But Jesus doesn't have that plan. He says, I have to go to Jerusalem, guys. I have to go to Jerusalem. And the chief priests and the elders and the scribes are going to make me suffer there in Jerusalem. And then I'm going to have to die. That is the plan. That's the plan. Do you see that Jesus knew that even here? While they were still up in Galilee, Jesus knew that was the plan. Before this, Jesus had already been hinting at it. Jesus has known that this was the plan for a long time. A long time. 
He's been waiting for this time to come. I don't think he was excited about it. But he's been waiting for it, anticipating it, knowing that this is the plan, this is what must be done, and he was going to do it. Nothing was going to stop Jesus from accomplishing his plan, and his plan was this. There is a bunch of sinful people in the world, and I have a heavenly Father who is holy. And I need for a sinful people to be accepted by a holy God, and the only way that that can happen is through death. And so I'm going to offer my own life that those who believe in him, that those who believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, might accept his death instead of their own and receive eternal life. So that the gates of death would not have any, any hold on them, can't contain them. Because just as Jesus is going to die and then on the third day rise again from the dead, so those who believe in him, though they may die, will rise again from the dead to have eternal life with him. That's been the plan from forever. Jesus has known this. Jesus is getting ready for this. Jesus is now trying to explain his, to his disciples what's going on so that when they get there, they will kind of be able to follow along with it. And now they're beginning to understand, right? There was lots of doubt, lots of disbelief, not, lots of not understanding about who Jesus was. Jesus, can you really provide? Where are we going to get enough bread to provide for all of these people? And Jesus says, well, that's not a problem. I'll just keep breaking bread until everybody's eaten. I can provide. Jesus, look at all of these people and all of the problems that they have. Yes, but I can heal them. I just touch them and they are healed. Jesus, people don't understand who God is right, but I can explain to them about the kingdom of heaven in parables so that they can begin to get a picture of what this kingdom of heaven is like. And he's been explaining it to them and now... Peter goes, nope, that's not how it's going to be. That's not how it's going to be, Jesus. Interesting plan, but I don't think you know very much about messiahs. I think you don't understand what conquering king looks like, Jesus. Let me just explain to you. There are 12 of us. We're pretty burly dudes. We're going to go with you. We're going to recruit some others on the way. There's already a whole bunch of people who are with us. They see and hear and really like you. And so we're going to go down to Jerusalem and we're going to make you king. And the elders and scribes and chief priests aren't going to make you suffer because how could that be? How could the messianic king come into Jerusalem and not be recognized by the religious leaders? How could the Jewish Messiah come and not be accepted by the Jews, by the Jewish leaders, by the teachers and the, the, the uh, teachers of the law? How would they not accept you, Jesus? They will definitely get it. They will definitely get it. We're going to recruit all these people. We're going to go down to Jerusalem. We're going to have the 
the chiefs and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are going to begin to understand what's going on. They're going to get on board. There's going to be a revolution. We're going to have a great big kingdom. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to be right there with you, Jesus. Can I be your right-hand man in this? I know, I know you, you need to get talked up a little bit. I know you're nervous about this. We're going to go down to Jerusalem and we're going to have you be king in Jerusalem. And so I just want you to know you don't have to suffer because we're going to be right here with you. Here we go, Jesus. This is it. This is our time. This is your time. It's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. There's not going to be any suffering. There's certainly not going to be any death. May that never be that the Messiah of God would be killed by the religious leaders. May that never be. I've got a really good plan here, Jesus. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What an incredible turn. Here, just a few verses ago, Peter had declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus had said, yes, you are Peter, the rock. But on this solid rock, this declaration that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, on that solid rock, I will build my foundation for the church. And the gates of death will not prevail against that rock. And now he turns to Peter and goes, say what? Get behind me, Satan. Because you have become a stumbling stone to me. Peter went from declaring that he was the Christ to getting in the way of the mission. Becoming a hindrance, trying to thwart Jesus' purposes, and Jesus says, hold up, time out. Satan, knock it off. Because if we go back to chapter 4, right before we had that phrase, from that time Jesus began, Right before that, we have this uh, temptation of Jesus in chapter 4. And, and Satan had been trying to tempt Jesus that he did not have to suffer. Oh, Jesus, you're really hungry out here in the desert. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to suffer. You just, just ask and these stones will become bread and you can eat and you don't have to suffer. Oh, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, you could just jump off of this and, and the, the angels will catch you and you don't have to break any bones. You don't have to get hurt because God will protect you. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, if you want to be the king, you don't have to go through all the suffering and everything. All you have to do is just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms you want. Everything you want, Jesus, I'll give you whatever you want. You just bow down to me. And at each 
point, Jesus said, no, that's not how it is. That's not how it's going to go. That's not my plan. I'm going to do it. And you're not going to stop me. You're not going to trip me up. You're not going to distract me. You're not going to turn me away from my mission. And now Jesus is hearing from the lips of Peter the very same temptations that were coming from Satan back in chapter 4. No, Jesus, may it never be that the Messiah would suffer. You're supposed to be the conquering king. And he says, oh, I know that voice. I know those words. Peter, those are are not the words of God. Those are not the words that I have been teaching you. Those are the words of Satan. Your purposes here are in alignment with Satan rather than with God. Where did these ideas come from? How did Peter get these ideas? I don't really know. I just know that it doesn't seem that weird to me that Peter thought this way. Because it's not that different than the way that I think. When I'm not steeped in the Scriptures and putting my mind on the things of God, then when I'm looking at my circumstances, my priorities are all messed up. The things that I think are important are usually not that important. And the things that are really important don't seem that important to me in light of the urgent things right in front of my face. And that's what's happening for Peter here. He's going, whoa, whoa, Jesus, that's not how this can go. That's not how this should be. And Jesus takes Peter aside. And in the way that he did in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 9, when Satan said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so now in chapter 16, he says, get behind me, Satan. For you are a hindrance to me, because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And when I read that, I have to say that it makes me a little bit nervous. Because here is Peter, a follower of Jesus, right there with him every step of the way, seeing all of the things that Jesus is doing. He's the first one to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then moments later, having just professed that moments later, he is against Jesus and Jesus' purposes. And I think, if that can happen to Peter, it could happen to me. Lord, help me and protect me that I never stand against you. That I never try to get in the way of your purposes. That I never try to stop your plans. 
And when I'm reading the scriptures like this, it is easy for me to take that posture. But when I am walking through life and I see things and I'm feeling things, it is a lot harder for me to take that posture. It's a lot harder for me to remember these words. Because when I'm walking through life and things get hard or I see the sufferings of others, I go, wait, that shouldn't be. That can't be how this is supposed to go. What's wrong here? And I am afraid that because I do not understand the ways of God, I try to get in His way. Now, ultimately, I recognize that nothing is going to stop God from accomplishing His purposes, not even my idiocy. There's nothing that I'm going to do that's going to actually stop God from accomplishing His purposes, but I never want to be at cross-purposes with God. I never want to be a hindrance or a stumbling block or in the way for what He's trying to do. And so, a passage like this reminds me to, with great humility, go to the Lord and say, Lord, I do not know what is good for me or for others. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when I encounter those situations that are difficult in my life, and I say, okay, Lord, I am going to trust you in this. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your glory be made known. Because so often God does it in ways that we wouldn't do it. I think there would be more effective ways of um, getting God's glory made known. What if, we'll just try this on for a thought experiment, what if every believer who prayed to God won the lottery? What if every believer who prayed to God had their sickness healed? Then wouldn't people know? Then wouldn't everybody come to God and go, wow, what an amazing God they, those Christians serve because every person who comes into that church is healed? Every, churchin, every person who comes into that church is blessed? Every person who comes into that church has all of the things that they ever wanted and could delight in? Wow, what an amazing God that is. And I think, God, I don't know why you didn't think of it. But let, let me tell you my idea. Here's my idea. You just bless me and all of my friends so ridiculously that everyone else who will see it, and then they will become Christians too. What do you think? Oh, my foolish son, you do not understand my ways. You do not understand my glory, my mercy, my compassion. And so it is cause for me in a passage like this to humbly come to the Lord and say, Lord, I do not understand your ways. Would you help me to walk in them? The other thing that this does is it cautions me that even those who proclaim the name of Jesus 
may proclaim things that are at cross-purposes with his mission. And so we see that in Peter here, right? What about those other disciples who are all standing around? I mean, I know Peter pulled him aside, but I don't think that anybody else was confused about what the conversation Peter was having with Jesus was about. And Peter's one of the favored disciples, right? He's one of the leaders. He's the one that of us, we all were going, yeah, we think he's the Christ, the son of the living God. But Peter's the one bold enough to say it. He's the guy. And then moments later, Peter is saying, but Jesus, you must not suffer. There will be no suffering here. And so it causes me to say, okay, I have to be careful of snake oil salesmen. Those people who are professing the words of Satan, even have they already professed the words of Christ, I have to be careful for those who are mixing messages and going, oh, Christ is the Son of God, but there should be no suffering for His people. There should only be blessing for His people. And I say, I have to be aware and cautious of those messages. That only those things that align with the words of God are the things that I will accept, regardless of who they come from. Because even Peter can speak Satan's messages at times. But this is God's actual purpose. That the Messiah, the King, the Son of the living God would come to earth as a man, would experience the trials and temptations that we experience so that he might identify with us, yet go through life perfectly following the will of his heavenly Father. And despite perfectly following the will of his heavenly Father, he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and be crucified on the cross and die. And then, three days later, would rise from the dead to demonstrate that he has authority over sin and over death and over life, that he might give it to whomever he will. This is what it says in Colossians chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So that you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And this is the hope for Peter. That though at this moment he didn't understand it, from that time he didn't understand it, yet there would be a time when he would understand it. There would be a time when he would watch the suffering that he didn't want to happen, happen to Jesus. He would observe the crucifixion that he so dreaded happen to Jesus. And then he would see the resurrected Christ. And he would be restored. His sins would be forgiven. And he would be a great proponent for those to follow Jesus. And that is our hope as well. Next week we will be looking at what it means to follow Jesus. But for now, let us hope in this, that the plan has always been that Jesus would suffer and die and rise again. And nothing, nothing will stop him from accomplishing his purposes so that those who believe in him will have eternal life with him. Let's pray. Lord God, you make different plans than we would make. You have different strategies and different ways of executing your justice. Demonstrating your holiness. Dealing with those who have sinned. And Lord, from our fleshly perspective, it does not make sense. And often we find ourselves at cross purposes with you because we do not understand what you are doing. And Father, I do not understand why you would give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to those such as us and such as Peter. but we acknowledge that you are a gracious and holy God. And we are grateful that though we are sinful, you make way for our sins to be forgiven. And so I ask for those who are here today that you would forgive them of their sins. That you would fill them with your Holy Spirit that they might trust in you today and tomorrow and every day. 
and that ultimately we might see your glory fully revealed and understand in a way now we can only understand partially. That we might rejoice and be delighted in all that you are. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.